very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, and welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. Sean Richards hosting today, and you're not Bo Olette. No. <laughs> I'm this guy. Scott this Richards. Guy. <laughs> it's normally joined I don't, by... I usually don't like to refer to myself in the third person, but if you'd like, for the duration of the program, I can. Yes, the... Or Scott Richards can. <laughs> yes. The offhand joke is, of course, Bo would normally be joining us, but he ha has had a lot of churchy opportunities lately, so he is out of town at the moment, but he'll be joining us next week. Until yeah, I don't then, think it's dead guy duties. He's no, no in dead. Las Cruces, New Mexico at a conference, so... No cooking duties either, yeah. although I hear that they have lovely quantities there. Yeah. Nonetheless, if you want to send us your Bible questions, feel free to do so at the usual venues. You can email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. The questions is plural, F-O-R-hope at gmail.com. Note that is preferred if you would like to not only keep your question organized and easy to access for us, but also if we don't get to your question during the broadcast, time eludes us for some reason. That is a very good way, not the only way, but the best way for us to be able to save it for a future date. Also note, if you want to join us on YouTube, our social media main platform, A Reason for Hope, our Calvary Christian Fellowship will be where you can join us. And of course, if you subscribe to us there, you will also get the added benefit of the bi-weekly Bible studies we are doing here, not only going through the book of Acts and Esther, but as of this Wednesday, Wednesday, excuse me, exclusively, a little discussion on the Trinity. So, and how much God loves us. Yes. Which is an appropriate thing for Valentine's Day, I would think. Yes, leave that to the single guy. But <laughs> with that said, YouTube will keep you notified of when we are going live. So the shift from five to six to now four to five will not be a hazard for you. We would appreciate you giving us support there. And note that you will have access to a chat room which you can send your questions to us live as we are, of course, streaming, or in the comment section if you would like us to get to them after their, or before the next broadcast. Same is true for Facebook at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, or CCF Tucson in the Facebook platform. So you want to, en or not enjoy, but avoid social media altogether, you can join us on our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. That's C-A-L-V-A-R-Y, christianfellowship.com. Click on the Watch Live tab, and you'll be able to join us not only live streaming, but you'll also be able to ask us questions in the tab labeled accordingly. Looking forward to engaging with you, but note that with all of these venues, the standard for the kinds of questions we will be addressing are sincere Bible questions. That means that if you are sincere, that means you want to hear the answer, not just trying to play stump the pastor. We will address issues that are hostile to the Christian faith. We want to make sure that you're listening to the answer if you are, in fact, asking it in the form of a question, which is the second requirement. The third is that, of course, the substance of the question and the the answer both pertain to the Bible. So if your question meets that criteria, then we'll be happy to address it for the next 54 minutes. But of course, since we are living in a world that gives us more and more reasons to look up and fewer reasons to want to look around, we're going to guide you safely through both in our prophecy update. And then of course, to make sure God speaks more than we do, we're going to pray. So why don't we do that first? Yeah. Father, thank you so much that we have this opportunity to be able to spend time in your presence here. We pray that uh, your truth would be spoken in love, that we would be able to deal with all the controversies that are swirling around us uh, in our culture, and uh, especially the events that pertain to Israel, such significant events 
prophetically, certainly a heavenly heads up. Uh, when we see these things begin to take place, you said, look up for your salvation draws near. We don't want to be people that put our faith on autopilot or just assume, uh, Jesus, that you're coming back 200 years from now. We want to live our lives in a very practical way with the earnest expectation that you reserve the right to come even before this broadcast is over. Uh, and, and Lord, uh, what a beautiful thing if we have that attitude in our hearts, like dearly loved children waiting for the sound of a beloved parent coming home at the end of the day. If we have that same heart towards your return, we're going to be just fine, even in the uh, horizontal decisions we have to make every day. So bless us, uh, help us to answer questions, not just as they're uh, presented, but to get through the issues of the heart. And may you be glorified as this broadcast unfolds in Jesus' name. Amen. That is true. All right. Well, as we mentioned yesterday, a lot is going on, not just as a result of, but in reaction to the uh, saving of two hostages from Gaza. And some of it, most of it is depressing, but nonetheless, what is significant about it? Well, uh, it's uh, interesting. I guess it's, you could say it's depressing. In a lot of ways, it's uh, kind of exciting as well uh, to see these things happen because Israel is moving into uh, the last major terrorist stronghold uh, in the Gaza Strip, a place called Rafah in uh, southern Gaza. Uh, their uh, admitted aim is to end up annihilating the last remnants of uh, the uh, organized Hamas battalions that are there, as well as capture a, a, a very interesting uh, individual we'll tell you about in uh, just a moment here. Uh, you know, again, the United States has kind of gone back and forth as far as uh, uh, making statements to the effect uh, that the United States doesn't support this final phase of the operations uh, that is going on there. Uh, the uh, people in Europe, uh, the leaders there, even uh, more adamant uh, that Israel draws the line there, declares a ceasefire. They would say that oh, the chances of uh, humanitarian uh, casualties here are tremendous because uh, so many of the people from Gaza have been pushed south towards this Rafah area. Now, for those of you not familiar uh, with the territory of Gaza and how many of us really are, uh, Rafah is the area in Gaza that borders Egypt directly. And uh, so uh, the Egyptians uh, have uh, gotten uh, themselves into uh, a bit of an uproar, saying that if uh, Israel goes into there, uh, they may even abrogate uh, the Egypt-Israeli peace treaty that was signed in uh, 1979, according to a uh, report on uh, CNBC citing Egyptian and Western officials. Uh, the Camp David Accords, uh, the cornerstone of regional stability, as it is called, uh, came uh, under uh, fire after uh, Benjamin Netanyahu sent uh, troops into Rafah. Uh, he says that it is necessary to win the four-month uh, war against Gaza, and I think he's exactly right. So a uh, few things that we've got to understand here. Uh, why uh, has uh, Egypt and now Saudi Arabia uh, both uh, gone public with the idea that if Israel does uh, continue uh, this operation into Rafah, uh, that uh, any possibility of them having uh, amicable relations with each other or even a peace treaty still in, uh, in effect it's going to happen here. Jerusalem Post even ran an article where an IDF general talked about uh, the formidable Egyptian army and how they might get involved with the conflict of Israel if this thing goes south. 
you know, it's really interesting when you read all these different articles and you hear all these different points of view and our State Department one day saying, oh, yeah, Israel can do whatever it needs to do. And then uh, the next day going, oh, no, no, they, they, they really can't. Quite. Um, quote, I have no confidence in the Israeli government, noting a Biden aid. But yeah, but uh, but the, the bottom line is this. Why does Israel have to go in and finish things off in Rafa? Uh, well, uh, commentator David Collier uh, put it this way, opposing the Israeli army moving into Rafah is like opposing the allies taking Berlin in World War II. No, stop. Don't take Berlin. Just let the Nazis survive. What's the point of taking Berlin? Let's have a ceasefire instead. He said it would be that stupid. So uh, Israel is a lot of things, but stupid is uh, not one of them. And as they've entered into Rafah, you know, the uh, the the fruit that has come out of that uh, has certainly been encouraging, including the rescue of Fernando Simon Marmon and Norberto Luis Har, uh, two uh, individuals who were kidnapped uh, from their kibbutz home on October 7th. Uh, They are now free individuals and in Israeli territory as we speak right now. So uh, the the notion of uh, accomplishing an awful lot through this invasion of the Rafah area uh, is is pretty significant, especially we understand that in the Rafah area is a uh, crucial individual. His name is Yaha Sinwar. Now, Yaha Sinwar uh, is uh, a is the uh, the head of uh, the conflict in Gaza. We hear about the other so-called leaders of Hamas uh, who are uh, you know, fighting the good fight in five-star hotels in Gutter and places like this in Turkey. Well, uh, Sinwar is uh, definitely on the ground. And Sinwar, as opposed to these other Hamas leaders, has incredible street cred with the average Hamas terrorist. Why? Because he has been about the business of not only killing Israelis in terrorist acts, but also killing Palestinians who either he branded as traitors or sellouts to the Israelis or not quite Islamic enough for his tastes. So uh, this fellow uh, was caught by Israel at one point, spent time in an Israeli jail. In fact, while he was in an Israeli prison, he was treated for a potentially fatal form of cancer. Uh, He recovered from that. And uh, when uh, the uh, infamous uh, prisoner exchange that took place, a uh, fellow by the name of Gilead, uh, Gilad Shalit, uh, and a captured Israeli prisoner, was exchanged. Uh, Yaha Senwar was one of the Palestinians that was released uh, as uh, a uh, prisoner exchange as a result of all this. Well, he immediately went back to his terroristic ways. Now, Israel has made him the number one target. Because uh, just as, uh, you know, in ancient days, uh, when uh, you would go after and go into battle, you would tend to go after the king. The famous account of King Ahab and King Jehoshaphat going into battle uh, against a Syrian enemy. Uh, It had been prophesied that uh, Ahab was going to die in that battle. Well, Jehoshaphat shows up in his normal kingly outfit with a kingly chariot. Uh, Ahab to uh, kind of hedge his bets, the prophet Micaiah saying, if you come back safely, the Lord hasn't spoken to me, uh, decided to dress up like any old other soldier. So the Syrians uh, decided to focus in 
on taking out the kings. And so they uh, went after Jehoshaphat. He hightailed it out of there, uh, managed to escape within an inch of his life. Then a Syrian soldier shot an arrow in the air where it landed. He knew not where, but uh, lo and behold, that random uh, arrow that wasn't really targeted at Ahab because he was disguised as just a regular soldier happened to hit Ahab just between the chinks of his armor. He uh, died uh, shortly afterwards by bleeding out. So uh, the idea of taking out a key individual like this goes way, way, way back. And uh, whether uh, Yaha Sinwar is uh, killed or captured, uh, if he goes down, pretty much the resistance of Hamas, according to uh, commentators, is going to go down. In an analysis by uh, Micah Halpern in the Jerusalem Post, uh, he put it this way, and I think it's really important if you're going to understand what's going to go on next in this set of circumstances. Uh, he said this, uh, the best analysis places Sinwar somewhere in the labyrinth of tunnels with a group of his inner circle and the hostages. We know that the IDF's crack commando units have been right on his tail and just missed him. Why else would Sinwar be in such a hurry that he would leave literally millions of dollars and shekels in Iranian documents showing the allocation of monies in support of Hamas and direct funds from Iran to Sinwar himself? Getting Sinwar is not simply a symbolic gesture or a pyrrhic victory. Sinwar's continued survival is what lends inspiration that drives Hamas terrorists to continue their fight. If their leader can survive, they too can survive and fight on. Uh, getting Sinwar is not simply cutting the head off the Hamas snake. No person inside Gaza can replace him. And those outside of Gaza have no credibility. They do not have the magnetism to motivate Hamas to continue their war. Uh, we know from video interrogations of Hamas officers captured by the IDF, they bluntly explain that their motivation has already been severely sapped. So uh, when we see uh, this uh, sort of thing going on, it's a reminder of the historical example of uh, Ulysses S. Grant uh, and the Battle of Fort Donelson in 1862. The Confederate General Buckner sent terms of surrender to Grant. Grant responded, no terms except unconditional and immediate surrender. Uh, Lincoln was so impressed that he named Grant unconditional surrender Grant. Uh, think of it like a game of chess. Uh, when the king is trapped, the game is over. Sinwar will be caught. It's just a matter of time. So uh, a lot of pressure being put on Israel to do this. And one of the reasons I think we're seeing our State Department and mixed messages from our administration going on is what they're communicating to the Israeli government is what you're doing in Gaza is going to affect politics here in the United States. And if there is still a war going on in Gaza, uh, by the time the election is going on. That spells very bad news for President Joe Biden and the Democrats because part of their coalition, two elements of it, have to be balanced with one another. Generally speaking, most Jewish people in the United States tend to vote Democrat. It's almost a, an article of faith with them. And they, generally speaking, even if they don't like, say, the policy of our administration will tend to hold their nose and vote Democrat because of tradition or because of other issues. There is, however, a block of voters that are reliably Democratic that will absolutely not only sit out, but probably even vote third party if this conflict is still going on. And that is the pro-Palestinian faction in uh, key states like uh, Michigan 
Dearborn, Michigan, it has such a high Muslim population now that it's referred to as Dearbornistan. Yeah, uh, you know the famous internet apologist David Wood, him and Nabil Qureshi were wrongfully imprisoned there when they attended an Arab festival and were set up by people who then tried to accost the girl who was with them and, of course, to set them in prison and confiscate their cameras so they couldn't prove to the contrary they hadn't broken any laws. It's definitely Sharia dominant right now. Yeah, so here we have this situation where there's increasing pressure on Israel to get something done basically in a hurry. Uh, what I think our State Department and probably by back channels and so forth is communicating to the Israeli government is if you are going to do this, you need to do it right now. Now, what about Egypt and what about Saudi Arabia? What about Egypt saber-rattling the point where they're saying we're going to throw out the Camp David Accords, the historic agreement that they had uh, that has brought peace uh, with Israel since 1979. Uh, you know, once again, uh, you, you have to understand how negotiation works in this neck of the woods. There's two factors that I think are, are going on here. Uh, the Rafah region abuts the uh, borderline between Gaza and Egypt. There is a, an official crossing there in the Rafah uh, region uh, where you can go across into Egypt uh, but uh, it's uh, a pretty intimidating sight when you see it. Uh, there are, uh, again, this huge fence that has been built. It's over 25 feet high. It is loaded with concertina-style razor wire uh, across the top. If you are able to get through that, understand something, on the other side of that is a 12-meter-deep uh, water pool, a moat, if you will, that is on the other side that is going to uh, slow your progress. Uh, if you get through that, there is a large, heavily mined area that keeps uh, a, virtually anyone from an unauthorized entrance into uh, this particular uh, nether woods. To add to that, there are Egyptian army manned uh, watchtowers that uh, will use electronic means and uh, motion sensors and things along that line. Uh, you know, again, uh, infrared goggles and so on. Make sure that nobody, but nobody, breaches this particular territory. So, you know, the idea that somehow there's going to be this mass group of Palestinians breaching the border, uh, it's not going to happen. Physically, it is not going to to happen. So it's why not the United States southern border? So why is Egypt throwing a major fit? Well, our good friend Amir Serfati has a very interesting insight into this today. And if you're not following him on his Telegram uh, feed, I highly recommend that you do. Uh, he writes this: the Egyptian regime fears one thing in Rafa, discovering the extent of the corruption of the Egyptian army and its relationship with arms, drug, and human smugglers. The tunnels linking Gaza to Egypt are located in Rafa. And some of them are even under the Rafah crossing itself. The lie that Egypt fears the displacement of the people of Gaza within Egyptian territory is a lie that no reasonable person can believe because of the uh, safeguards against this that we've already discussed here. Fortunately, a lot of unreasonable people, especially in positions of power. So the issue of the fear of displacement, it's more of an excuse than anything else. Uh, rather, it's the fear of that other things are going to be exposed if in Rafa, 
administratively related to their dealings with Hamas, their dealings in corruption, uh, including computers, tunnels, dealings between the Egyptian army, smugglers in Sinai, and Hamas and even ISIS members that have operated in the Sinai Peninsula uh, with uh, sort of a look the other way policy based upon the Egyptian government. Egypt does not want to get its hand caught in this cookie jar. And because, you know, we asked the question, okay, well, how did Hamas get all this weaponry? How did they get all of these missiles in there? Surely, if they were trying to get them in uh, by sea, these things would have been spotted right away. Well, again, if you can smuggle these things in through tunnels, through Egypt, with uh, the either tacit or uh, look the other way approval of the Egyptian government, it would explain why uh, the Hamas terrorists were able to do that and get the wherewithal to build the uh, tunnel network that they built. So the UN can't hide everything. So uh, where does this leave us in a sense? Uh, Well, you know, if you've ever gone to Jerusalem on a uh, tour, one of the uh, must uh, experience uh, things you've got to go to is a uh, visit uh, to uh, the uh, old-style Jerusalem marketplace. It's called the Mahani Yehuda Market. It's also known as the Shuk. Uh, and if you go there, you will see Middle Eastern uh, commerce in its purest form, which, by the way, and Sean will back me up on this, involves an awful lot of screaming and yelling. When you get into the negotiation phase, it is considered traditional and expected for the people, the person who's buying and the person who's selling to get into a huge, violent, spit-filled argument this far away from each other's faces with gyrations and it looks like they're going to about to beat each other up. And if you're not used to this and you're kind of an American, you're looking at them, man, somebody better call the police. But they're screaming, yelling, throwing dust up in the air and calling every name under the, the sun. And then suddenly the proposal is made that's acceptable. They look at each other, embrace, and commerce goes on. So what, what I think what we're seeing here with Saudi Arabia and with Egypt is like a visit to the Shuk. Um, you're seeing them you know, make these gyrations, make these very strong statements, and quite honestly, both of them do have a population of very committed Islamists in, uh, underneath them that they have to, uh, well, in a sense, throw a bone to say, oh, we're not going to let the Israelis do that and we're going to do this and the other. But uh, the bottom line is the actual governments of Egypt and Saudi Arabia want nothing whatsoever to do with Hamas. Hamas is a updated version of a group called the Muslim Brotherhood. You might recall that during the so-called Arab Spring, uh, the uh, uh, president of Egypt was overthrown by the Muslim Brotherhood for a time until uh, the current uh, regime under al-Sisi with the military backing came in and threw out the Muslim Brotherhood. The Muslim Brotherhood is Hamas. Hamas is the Muslim Brotherhood. Egypt does not want the Muslim Brotherhood creating problems for them on their own turf. Hence their policies here. Uh, uh, Again, go to Saudi Arabia, uh, the Saudi royal family, has to, in a sense, throw a bone to a group that they bought off over the years, the Wahhabists, uh, a very strict form of Islam, a very militant form of Islam. But because the Saudi royal family was smart enough to finance their ambitions, uh, 
in uh, in uh, spreading radical Islam across the, the uh, globe, uh, the uh, uh, th this particular group uh, has uh, supported the Saudi government. So the Saudi government is basically saying, yeah, 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 we're really upset about all this. Oh, yeah, those awful Israelis, those awful Jews, and yeah, we know the, the Quran and all this. But once it all dies down, you know, uh, th they are more interested, both of these groups, in seeing Hamas uh, destroyed, uh, really even than Israel is. They, they have no love for Hamas or the Palestinians whatsoever. So uh, fascinating things obviously going on in that uh, neck of the woods. And uh, I just would really encourage you to continue to pray uh, that uh, Israel would be successful in finding the hostages. I think finding those two hostages and being able to rescue them with only one soldier lightly wounded in the process uh, was absolutely huge. Uh, and uh, again, the moment uh, this fellow Yaha Sinar, Sinwar is uh, brought to justice, if you will, uh, the sooner I think things are definitely going to uh, calm down in that neck of the woods. A, a real ceasefire, a real return of the hostages, a real disbanding of Hamas could very well follow when this one man, this one individual, goes down. Hopefully. Yeah, so there you go. Speaking of the significance of one man in history, tomorrow is the celebration of St. Valentine. And we have a question from G who wants to know about the origins of said holiday, since we generally see it with renditions of the Roman god Hermes or Cupid, uh, makes people wonder if, as usual, it is pagan in origin. The reality is that it is about as Christian a holiday as you can get. Uh, first of all, St. Valentine, or Valentine as he's pronounced in modern tongue, was a Roman, an Italian born, and of course was later converted to Christianity. He believed in the Jewish Messiah. Now this was after the lifetimes of the apostles. He died around 270. That's fairly well documented. We don't know when he was born. But in a nutshell, this was his testimony. He was a practicing Christian bishop and serving in Rome, obviously having direct access and interactions with the Roman Emperor Claudius, this would have been Claudius II at the time, he was willing to perform what were essentially illegal marriages. Now what do I mean by that? What was meant is that Roman soldiers at the time of Claudius, not all throughout Roman history, but at that time, were forbidden from getting married because it would distract from their responsibilities in defending right. the state. Valentine was willing to perform these marriages, quote-unquote, off of Roman books in order to allow for them to pursue these kinds of relationships. And then, of course, throw in a gospel presentation or two along the way. Also noting that because Christianity was not legally recognized in Rome at this time, they were not willing to accept the legal unification of people under the Roman government if they were Christians. So Valentine was willing to perform those ceremonies Christian to Christian rather than in a way that Rome recognized. So the civil ceremonies and so forth were a tradition that he upheld. Now note that the modern rendition of marriage, saying vows and uh, having witnesses and so forth, that is a decidedly Christian invention, but it wasn't invented by Valentine himself. He just upheld it. The reason why you had witnesses was because as the Roman Empire did not recognize it, you needed someone to be able to affirm, no, we did make these vows. And then of course, on and on it went. The Romans 
um, a lot of propaganda against Christians and saying because they call each other brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, that meant that any marriages between the two of them were incest and so forth. And this is just as groundless as people saying that communion was cannibalism, but the Romans were going to Roman. So the idea of St. Valentine upholding this tradition was one that the emperor did not look on kindly, and on top of marrying off his soldiers and marrying between Christians, he was thrown into prison and ultimately being the Joseph-like individual that he was, gained a lot of favor with the local jailer and his daughter, the jailer's daughter, who was blind, needed tutoring and Valentine was willing to volunteer his time to read for her. They developed a good friendship, it never turned into marriage or anything like that, but he was, like Joseph, a man who gained a lot of favor wherever he went. And even so much so that Emperor Claudius was willing to give him a pardon if, as was always the case, he would renounce Christianity and affirm worship in the Roman gods. He said no, and so he was sentenced to death by beheading. Being a Roman citizen, he had that right. He would not be crucified, but he definitely didn't go out easily. They beat him a lot before the event. Uh, well, he was on quote-unquote death row, he wrote a letter to the girl that he was tutoring and signed the letter to, from your Valentine. And then, of course, the tradition started from there. I believe it was around 200 or so years after that, a certain pope made a, the time of his martyrdom a feast day in the Roman Catholic Church and across the entirety of Europe, and it has been associated with love and relationships ever since, not because it's honoring the patron deity of love and affection, which Hermes not, wasn't even. He was a messenger god. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't just love. But also noting that as well, the reason why we associate it with marital and dating relationships is because he was very much affiliated with that. Now, myths and legends were attributed to him later on that made him, quote-unquote, a patron saint, where he performed miracles and healings and so forth. Take it with a grain of salt. I don't doubt that God can do things through people in history, but I don't know why I should trust these records. But I do know when I can trust people, places, and things, especially accounts of embarrassment. What I've told you, I have examined, and I think that it's, for the most part, pretty straightforward. That's the reason why we celebrate Valentine's Day. Now, as far as whether or not you should celebrate Valentine's Day as a Christian, uh, I'm more accustomed to celebrating the day after because a lot of candy goes on sale at Walgreens. But the point being made is if you want to take this time to honor it as a day is unto the Lord, like any other day, or as one day above another, you're completely within your liberty to do so, and it is not sinful, nor is it pagan. So... With that said, anything you more go. to add? Uh, well, I, I would just say that any opportunity to tangibly express your love to one another is a good thing. So we are pro-Valentine's Day around here. Yes. All right. Uh, question from Yari. Uh, why did God order Saul to wipe out the Amalekites? So interesting conversation. Obviously, uh, you're going through the book of Esther right now, so we have a long-term scope for that. Why don't we discuss that before we get into the short-term reasons? Well, uh, in order to understand what was going on in Esther, you've got to go back to the past. Uh, the, uh, the fact of the matter is the Amalekites, as they are identified, were not Canaanites. They were individuals who attacked Israel several times and, and forged alliances with the Canaanites. You can read about uh, their misadventures in places like uh, Exodus chapter 17 and so on. So the time of Moses. Yeah, all the way back to the time of Moses. And they had this really noxious tactic of following after the people of Israel and uh, picking off 
the old, uh, children, the infirm, uh, with the idea of terrorizing Israel. We see terrorism practiced as a tactic by uh, the Amalekites. Uh, 2,100 years before Islam, by the way. Yeah, and, and they, they show up again uh, in the book of Judges. They were always a thorn in the side of the people of Israel. So when King Saul became king, uh, he was given the responsibility by the prophet Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 15 to completely wipe out the Amalekites. Uh, but as you discover, uh, when uh, uh, Samuel gave Saul the orders not to even take their livestock or anything like that, uh, when Samuel got there, uh, you know, Saul said, I've obeyed. Uh, the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission which the Lord sent me. Uh, you know, again, I brought Agag, king of Amalek, and I've devoted the Amalekites to destruction. Remember that name, Agag. Yeah. So uh, Samuel basically said, so what is the sound of all these sheep I'm hearing around here? He went, oh, I, I, I kept them, you know, to, to, to do a sacrifice to your God. You know, it wasn't... Not my God. It wasn't God. Saul's God anymore. It was, it was your God. And uh, basically, that was the straw that broke the, scam, the camel's back, so to speak. You want to use another Middle Eastern reference there. At that point, uh, Samuel said, the kingdom's taken from you and is going to be given to someone uh, better, uh, someone that is a man after God's own heart. And, uh, you know, again, King Agag was sitting there thinking, oh, yeah, I'm going to, you know, just be uh, like a uh, palace, uh, like a prisoner of Saul. And he's going to take good care of me. Well, uh, Samuel dispatched him. But uh, the, the fact was that because Saul shirked on his duty and lied about it, the results were dire. Uh, just a couple decades later, there were enough Amalekites that Saul didn't take out to end up taking David and his men's families captive. Uh, Within one generation, yeah. if that. Yeah, like two decades, 20 years. Uh, several hundred years after that, and this gets to the gist of the question here, uh, a descendant of the Amalekites, a fellow that we meet in the book of Esther named Haman, he is called an Agagite. In other words, he traced his lineage back to to good old King Agag, the guy who thought he was going to be Saul's bosom buddy and lifelong pal. And just as a side note before you get into it, remember when Samuel executed him. He didn't do so just because, well, we don't take prisoners. It was just as your sword has rendered women childless. Right. This guy made a lifetime career going all the way back to Exodus that you target women and children. You're not going to get away with it. You're going to die here and now. Right. And Samuel was who, as far as legal administration was concerned in Israel at the time, the last judge, the one who put Saul in power. This wasn't some Israeli arbitrarily cutting down a prisoner. Right. Saul was under His Samuel's authority. Samuel wasn't under Saul's authority. Right. So, uh, you know, once again, legal uh, justice being practiced there. But because it was incomplete... Well, if you know the story of Esther, this fellow Haman had risen to up the ranks and was uh, a, a trusted advisor of King Ahasuerus, also known as Xerxes. Mm -hmm. And uh, because Mordecai, who was Esther's cousin, didn't give him his propers that he thought had coming to him, it just drove him nuts. And he put together not just 
a scheme to take out Mordecai, but convinced uh, King Ahasuerus that the Jews in general were uh, a threat to the, uh, the empire and that they needed to be wiped out in a genocide. It nearly happened. So uh, God seeing the future, right? Seeing that this guy would come this close to exterminating all of the Jews that were in the Medo-Persian Empire. Remember, only about 90,000 of them had gone back to uh, reclaim the land. The land, even though they were, they were given the wherewithal to go back with Ezra and so forth, it was a pretty wild and woolly place. You had to be pretty hardcore to go back there. Most of the Jewish population had settled down in that particular area. So if Saul had obeyed the voice of the Lord, it would have saved David's men, saved the wives and children of David's men. It would have saved the Jews of uh, Esther's day an awful lot of trouble in coming this close to being exterminated themselves. And just note the overall timeline here. We've got 14 BC, 1400 BC, noting the time of Moses. Right. Their first interaction with Israel was attacking civilian targets and non-combatants. The 400 years that passed by, that is an unbroken track record of hostility towards Israel. After 400 years of interacting with Israel with nothing but hostility and underhanded methods, God sentences them to be executed. And they don't. So another 400 years passes right. from 1000 BC to 600 BC, noting with some wiggle room, the time of Esther. And what About happens? 150 years beyond that, yeah. So another yeah. 550 second chances for the Amalekites. Yeah. And then what happens? One of them in political power hears, doesn't see, it's not as if he was the guy who wouldn't salute Hitler in the crowd. He hears that someone decided to go home on a different route when Haman had his daily worship me parades and decides, I'm going to exterminate this guy's entire ethnicity. Not just him, but everyone. Not reasonable for, people. For, for ego's sake. Yeah. So why is it that God drew the line with these people? Oh, wait, he didn't. He gave them 400 years. He warned them in Exodus 17, what did he tell Joshua to put into writing? Sorry, major universities, written language did exist at that time. What was the warning? Perpetual war with Amalek for what they had done here. Now, do we see other declarations of war, but ultimately resulting in their restoration? Yes, with the Canaanites, specifically the Gibeonites. When they asked for mercy, what were they given? Yeah, mercy and a position of honor to serve in the temple, even though they were Gentiles. Yeah, and on the micro, we could uh, point to Rahab, who lived in the city of Jericho. Uh, she and her family were spared because they believed what they had heard about God and his dealings with the Egyptians. And yet, in spite of all these offers of mercy, what did the Amalekites get? Exactly what they received. Not mercy, but a continual opposition to God and his people. And God continued to give them not days, not months, centuries of second chances. Yet what do we see happening? Press conferences saying, oh, we need a ceasefire with the Amalekites now that their plan to exterminate you didn't work out. We got the UN resolutions and all this stuff. History is repeating itself. But these utter savages, these absolute genocidal monsters were tolerated among God's people for 400 years. Then God gives the order, drive these people out. They fail to obey that, and what do the Amalekites do? 
We were innocent. What, what is all this anti-Jewish propaganda? No, the next king in line, before he even has a chance to take power, has his family kidnapped while the soldiers are away, still using terror tactics and fighting those who can't fight back. Why did God not want to deal with these people anymore? Because they couldn't be reasoned with. Right. And then what happens? Saul is judged so harshly, not after one mistake, with him trying to offer a sacrifice as a priest when he was only supposed to be king, not after his second mistake in disobeying and not waiting for Samuel, but failing to uphold his, his duties as the legal and civil defense of Israel's borders. The one job you have as king. Right. The one reason you were raised up in the first place, and you're not doing it, you're going to cost thousands of lives over hundreds of years of history. So here's the point. Why is it that God was so harsh with the Amalekites? Because they were that harsh, and God had given them more than enough chances. Yeah. When the accusation is made, well, they're being targeted for their ethnicity, that's genocide. No, they're being targeted for their behavior and centuries of unprovoked and unremittent I believe is the proper word, in ceasing attacks on civilian targets. Now, I know today it's popular to support the terrorists, so there's no reasoning with you there. But the point of emphasis that we need to make is that these people were given a chance to surrender. They were given a chance to amend their relationships and perhaps have a peaceful existence, which had been demonstrated with other nations before them, right. individuals and in groups, simply by asking, even under somewhat shady pretenses. Again, read the book of Joshua if you want to know about the Gibeonites. But the point is this. They were targeted because they weren't Jewish. No. They were targeted because they were terrorizing the people of Israel. Now, I know, again, people will support that and consider that virtuous today because they're filthy Jews. But what's the actual issue here? It's not ethnicity. It's an ongoing and unwillingness to negotiate peace, which are the conditions of just war. You can't live at peace with them, so what can you do? That is the purpose through which war must be waged justly, to end someone who can't be reasoned with apart from violent restraint of their actions. Yeah. So that's why. Yeah. So, yeah, a, bi a big issue, but really a very relevant one because in many ways we see a parallel with what's going on uh, with Gaza. Uh, what did Israel do prior to uh, the October 7th war? Provide them with water, provide them with electricity, provide their people with jobs. The individuals that ended up uh, raiding the homes in the kibbutzes were individuals that were hired by the individuals in the kibbutzes to work in their homes. They provided the intelligence necessary to slaughter these innocent people and to brutally rape the women. So uh, once again, very important for us to understand why Israel is doing what they're doing. And it uh, seems like history repeats itself. Anyway, yeah. um, real quick uh, prayer request. I'll keep it anonymous, but uh, an individual who listens to our broadcast fairly frequently is feeling very depressed and even suicidal. He would like some prayer support for encouragement and comfort. Yeah, let's pray. Uh, Father, you know who this individual is, and you know exactly uh, what is uh, going on in his life that has brought him to this place of feeling so discouraged and so low. Lord, I thank you that you tell us in your word that you are the God of all comfort, that you know how to comfort us when we are in any affliction, that we might comfort others with the same comfort whereby we're comforted by God. And I pray uh, for this gentleman, Lord, that you would come alongside of him and let him know that even going through a low time, a discouraging time like this, can be something that you can turn around for the good if it increases his compassion for other people 
that are hurting. Uh, if it gives him a, a, a sense of your nearness and your strength that you offer so freely. So pour your Holy Spirit out on him. Cause him to, uh, Lord, uh, be lifted up, uh, even supernaturally, Lord. If there's a physical cause behind all of this, I pray it be identified and even practically amended. But Father, I just pray in Jesus' name that uh, you would shepherd and rescue uh, this man and love on him. In Jesus' name, amen. That is true. And while we're on the morbid topic, when the issue of suicide comes up, and yes, I know YouTube will block us for that, the whole issue of, well, the person knows Jesus, so they'll go to heaven anyway, so why bother to continue living if it just doesn't seem worth it if you know you're going to end up in heaven? How would we respond to that? Well, there's a lot of talk about that. There was a, uh, a very uh, interesting story in the sense of it being diagnostic about a uh, former prime minister of the Netherlands who was in his 90s uh, committing assisted suicide with his wife, them being found together uh, today. And uh, some people were saying, oh, this, wasn't that a wonderful way to go out, uh, you know, with them holding hands and, and so on. Uh, but, you know, the issue comes up, all right, uh, what does the Bible say about suicide? Uh, in no place is suicide ever presented as a positive option in the Bible. God is the one who is the author of life. The Lord gives and he takes away, we see in the book of Job. We are told in uh, Psalm 139 that the days of our lives are written in the Lord's book when there was not yet one of them. In other words, God is the one who has put us in this world, put us in this world for a reason, for his glory. And for us to exercise, in a sense, the godlike prerogative of saying, no, I'm going to take my life at this point. Uh, is something that, uh, first of all, is not from faith. And the scripture tells us that whatever is not of faith is sin. Uh, secondly, it's presumption because uh, we assume that there is no hope when the Lord says, no, wait a minute, there is hope. Uh, you know, let's face it, uh, when people uh, are in real depression, and I went through a time of real depression back in the early 90s, so believe me, I understand uh, just uh, how devastating all that can be. Uh, the, the important thing to understand is this. When we decide, well, that's it, I'm going to take myself out, you know, it's almost like a short-term gain with long-term pain. You know, is committing suicide the unforgivable sin? Well, no. The only sin that God can't forgive is putting our faith and trust in Jesus. Uh, the debate comes in, it, can an individual who has a genuine relationship with God ever behave in such a way? Because the scripture tells us that no murderer has eternal life in them in the book of 1 John, and uh, suicide comes down to self-murder. I have been in situations, though, where people who weren't in their right mind, um, you know, one situation in particular, a uh, dear friend of mine's brother who was in ministry, took his life uh, because uh, they had uh, switched his medications uh, for a mental issue he was dealing with, and he had a reaction to it, and uh, he did that. He wasn't suicidal before all of this. Uh, and, and so, you know, when that happens, inevitably there's people that want to play Monday morning quarterback and say, oh, you know, is, is he in heaven? Is he not in heaven? In situations like this, I think we have to defer to Genesis chapter 18 and verse 25, where it says, will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? But having said that, 
when a person does something like this, and you know, sometimes there's extenuating circumstances, and obviously in any suicidal situation, one could always point to extenuating circumstances. But the, the moment that that happens, those who are left behind are left with a huge question mark. You know, did this person really know God? You know, is, is this indicative of the fact that I won't see them again? You know, and, and no one in that set of circumstances can jump in and say, oh, no, no, I'm sure it's going to be okay. Uh, aside from saying, uh, God cares more about that person who committed suicide than you and I do. He sent Jesus to die for their sins. Uh, the mere act of suicide isn't, in a sense, disqualifying. There's other factors that have to come into all of that. But all that being said, the number one thing that happens when someone commits suicide is it drops in the lap of those who survive and carry on this incredible grief, this, this sense of going, gosh, I just don't know if I'm going to see this person ever again. And that you know, grief in any set of circumstances, when anyone passes away, for whatever circumstance, is, is always a tough thing, but that compounds the issue. It makes going through the grieving process for those who are left behind that much worse. So, um, you know, I've been told uh, by those uh, who work in psychology that oftentimes uh, the majority of cases of suicide are, in a sense, attempted suicides that somehow were miscalculations. Uh, sometimes it's a, a call for help, sometimes it's a cry for attention, sometimes it's a form of manipulation, but if something goes wrong, then that person dies and you don't get a, a do-over in that set of circumstance. I, I guess scripturally we just have to come back to John chapter 10 and verse 10. Uh, Jesus said, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. You know, where does the suicidal impulse come from? Doesn't Not God. Doesn't come from God. Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. Now notice, Jesus didn't say, I've come that they might have life and have it more easily. Uh, I have come that they might have life and have it, uh, well, uh, where I'm happy all the day. No, he never said that. More abundantly, more fully. He said, in this world you'll have tribulation, but fear not, for I've overcome the world. You know, the scripture likens our lives to a race. Uh, and we want to run with endurance the race that is set before us as the scripture enjoins us to do. And, you know, having run a lot of races in my life, my track and field career and running 10Ks and marathons and things like that, inevitably, if you're doing it right, there's going to come a time in the race where you're going to feel like quitting. But you've got to press on to the finish line. And that's the same thing that the scripture tells us in that set of circumstances. Yeah. And if you're put in a situation where naturally as this world's going to cultivate selfishness as much as possible, focus on someone else who may be doing worse than you, and you'll find that that break from your own thoughts might help as well. When it comes to my own struggles in this department, understand that a feeling, a desire, is not an action. Don't be submitting to that. That's ultimately what we can say, and we'll continue to pray for you. But with that said, yeah. Uh, going out back to our questions, we've got a few minutes left. Uh, John wanted to know why historically Christians used a fish as their symbol around the time of St. Valentine, in fact. So when, you know, obviously people pictured the cross, they actually knew what that meant, and it would be weird to portray one of the most brutal forms of execution ever devised by human beings. When people would do the little half circle in the sand and to the other end. What was the significance of that? Well, the term ichthus, which is Greek for fish, 
was like an acrostic. Uh, you know, we use an acrostic here uh, on this program uh, for uh, how to spot a cult. And they say about Christ, their understanding of the scriptures, legalism, who they tell you to trust. Uh, Ichthus worked uh, the same way uh, because uh, the letters of Ichthus uh, were the first letters of a statement. Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. Uh, and so when we hear, we see ichthus, those were the first letters in Greek. You go, well, well, I don't see the J there. Well, Jesus in Greek, there was no J. There, it was uh, the uh, letter iota. Yeah. And so it would go on from there. And so because of that, it, it was more than just something you would slap on the back of your chariot. It was a confession of faith, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, because first of all, Jesus is Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He's the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. He is God's son. Uh, in other words, he's not God junior, but he is God the son. Uh, and uh, what did he come to do? He came to be our savior. So in a nutshell, if you believe those things, you know, we talk about the minimal that you have to have in place in order to have Christian fellowship with one another. You know, we try to keep those as, uh, as limited as we can. Same thing would happen. And in, back in that day when it was a crime to be a Christian and a very dangerous thing to let spill that you belong to the Lord, still is. Uh, oftentimes uh, what people would do would be they would draw one line like this in the sand, sort of this arch. And if the other person was a Christian, they would know to complete the arch underneath with all of that. Some would say it also ties in the fact that uh, a portion of Jesus' disciples were fishermen. Jesus said, I'm going to send you out and catch men. You're going to be fishers of men, Jesus promised. And so it tied into that uh, as well. So that's, that's really where that came from. I hope John lets enough that helps. You know, and, and uh, just an aside, you know, when I see like a Darwin fish or, you know, like, a, you know, a, I, they, they have all the uh, permutations on all of that. Oh, ha, ha, that's really snarky. Oh, isn't that, uh, you know, uh, irreverent. irreverent. But when people do that, they don't realize that the people who originally did that were doing that because their lives were in danger for their faith. Uh, that you're mocking someone's deeply held belief, so deeply held that the people from that era that uh, where that started uh, actually laid down their lives in brutal, grisly ways rather than deny that Jesus was their Savior. So if your desire to be snarky or to tweak the sensibilities of someone who's stuck behind you in traffic is so great that you want to dismiss the sincere, uh, even self-sacrificing faith of early believers in Jesus. And current no, believers in Africa today. Yeah, uh, knock yourself out. But uh, I, I don't know if th- what that says about Christianity. Uh, I do think I know something that that says about your character. Cheeky. Yeah. Well, we got two minutes, but I think we have time for one more. We mentioned Samuel earlier. Robert wants to know, uh, regarding 1 Samuel 10, verse... 9, uh, where it mentions that God gave Saul another heart, and then goes on to note, is even Saul among the prophets. He wants to know if this has something to do with this constant rebellion against God's commands, and thus receiving that tormenting spirit from the Lord. Is there anything that would happen to Pharaoh when God hardened his heart, and so forth? Um, Just the opposite, Robert. That situation was noting that Saul was given the ability to prophesy, to speak and worship God on behalf of him, being filled with the Holy Spirit, which back then would have been 
uh, rare. <laughs> yeah, but 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 a picture of uh, what it meant to be a king, uh, the ceremony that you would go through. Remember in First Samuel sixteen when uh, David went and uh, or Samuel went and identified David as the next king. What did he do? He poured oil on his head. Now, that picture of oil uh, on, being poured on someone is a type and a picture of the Holy Spirit. You know, and so uh, when you see that happening, you see this coming upon power of the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes into our life, foreshadowing the Christian life, uh, what are we told? If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things passed away, behold, new things have come. That's why Jesus says being a Christian Becoming a Christian isn't just going to a church or believing certain true statements about God. It is quite literally the Lord giving you a brand new heart. You are born again. You're made a brand new person from the inside out. The minute you put your faith and your trust, the fact that Jesus died on the cross for us, that he rose from the dead in a moment of history so that we could be saved. And uh, so, you know, acknowledging the fact that we need to be saved and that he is a savior, putting our trust in him, that's how we become born again. And so we see that foreshadowed in the life of Saul in that passage. Now, maybe to build on the point, I know when I gave my life to the Lord, it was Christmas Eve when I was 11 years old. Uh, that was, interestingly enough, around the same time when a lot of interesting things started to be revealed about my heart and life, and noting that God will call us up to be accountable for those things, to live for more than what we even think we ought to be doing. But the idea that Saul was possessed by something that was in a sense of evil time bomb, no, it was God coming into Saul's life, literally for Old Testament salvation. Now, the fact that he then rebelled meant that God kept him on a short leash, but it's for this reason and many others that we believe Saul and David were both, in fact, had a genuine relationship with God. The only difference is David uh, benefited from it less. You've God been listening you. to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.